I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Welcome back to Humanity in War. Armed conflicts, natural hazard-induced disasters, and other emergencies have a serious impact on mental health and psychosocial well-being. Today on World Mental Health Day, I'm sitting down with Marcelo Queros, ICRC's regional MHPSS specialist, which stands for Mental Health and Psychosocial Support, who's based in Beirut, Lebanon. Thank you for joining us, Marcelo. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So I'd like to start with the why. Why are we having this conversation today? Because when we think about the more obvious and immediate effects of war, from basic survival to first aid to the need for food and shelter and reconnecting families separated by conflict, mental health seems like something that we just don't have the resources to prioritize. It's, the needs are so overwhelming, it can sometimes seem like a luxury. Can you tell us why we need to move mental health to the front burner in armed conflict? Yes, now that's a, that's a very important question because uh, when you look at the people's need, we need to consider not, uh, let's say, the more basic needs, and uh, but also to consider uh, the different type of uh, of uh, vulnerabilities and, and needs that people face, and definitively we have health and we have mental health. Um, Consider the, the huge impact that it can have for the psychological well-being, uh, for the capacity of the people to function, and the capacity of the people to, to deal with their problems. So in that sense, uh, mental health is important in two dimensions. One, it's uh, as a basic human right, so it's uh, one uh, need itself. So And we try to do our best to address that. But another dimension, it's how the mental health or uh, also the mental health issues, the psychological distress, can also compromise the ability of individuals and the communities to take decisions, to deal with problems, to build relationship, and to take care of themselves and others. So when you are addressing mental health and you're thinking about the well-being, uh, we also... Uh, or improve the capacity, the ability of per the people to build a relation to, and to, to face and to recover uh, an incident, if you're talking about a specific incident or a, a, a chronic uh, violence experience. So I think that it's... Uh, that it's uh, that is the main and the, the main issue. And when you look at the conflict affected areas, uh, and uh, you see the severity and also the intensity of the violence experience, uh, the mental health needs are huge and uh, also uh, compromise the capacity of people to deal with that, to to find security and uh, to manage with the, their their uh, best abilities. Let's talk about that a little more, actually, because, you know, I think that a lot of people who have had the good luck to not live in a conflict zone throughout their lives, I think over the last few years with the COVID pandemic, you know, people started, uh, people who maybe didn't have mental health issues 
on the forefront of their minds. We started talking about this a lot more. Over the last 20 years, mental health has been really, really coming more and more to the forefront. Um, and a lot of people had this, uh, you know, through confinement or uh, separation from loved ones throughout the pandemic, they maybe got a taste for the first time of some of these uh, issues that you're talking about today. Yet where you're operating is in a war zone. You're talking about people who are directly affected uh, by armed conflict and other situations of violence. So it is another degree of severity, as you say. And according to studies conducted by the World Health Organization, more than one in five persons in conflict-affected communities are living with mental health conditions. These are ranging from mild depressions to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is three times more than the general population worldwide. Can you give us a better idea of what, what exactly are people going through uh, who are affected by armed conflict? Yeah, uh, I think the COVID pandemic uh, gave us uh, a bit of uh, this uh, uh, collective stress uh, and uh, when the moment that we are uh, not be able to, to, to meet people and to do our activities and uh, let's say to have our normal life. Um, and uh, when you look about the people affected by violence and the conflict affected areas, uh, it's uh, it's uh, way worse than the way complicated, more complicated. Uh, uh, what we see uh, when uh, when uh, supporting uh, to address the needs of the people affected by by conflict, and uh, we start to get their experience, and uh, we see uh, how how tough uh, it is huh? to be highly exposed to the sexual violence, to, uh, to be displaced for their homelands, uh, they're exposed to the forced disappearance, uh, the risk of the children's association uh, with armed force, um, exposed to physical disabilities, among the other situations. So that is what the people pass through. And um, if we consider, if in the COVID, we consider that we are all affected and our mental health are all affected, we can imagine how tough it is for the people that pass through this uh, uh, very challenging and very uh, tough situations. Thank you for that recap. Um, and now you're calling today from Beirut. And this is a hub that's covering several countries in the Middle East that are currently ravaged by armed conflict and violence. Can you outline for us some of the key challenges in that region based on your experience and any particular stories that you have or, or things that you, you and your team have been grappling with in your work? Yes. So... Um Let's say the common challenge that we, we have uh, when working at CRC is the access, uh, the access to the people and the access to the community exposed by uh, uh, in the violence and the violent context. So um, we have the access issue. It's a normal challenge that we, we have. For the mental health, it's even more important because we need... Uh, the access not only to deliver the basic needs, but also to build the trust, to properly understand the nature of the psychological suffering, to ensure the continuity of assistance, and uh, to ensure, if you're talking about trainings, uh, to guarantee that the people have the continuity of support for some situation that is not uh, only an emergency, but sometimes 
uh, one, one situation that take for uh, years and years. So I think that is uh, the, the challenge. So sometimes we don't have the access that we are uh, that we need, so not to the community, but we have to the health center, and we need to to design our intervention considering also the the access that we have, and then another uh, level of uh, let's say challenges related to uh, the huge gap of mental health professionals on these areas, so. Uh, in special uh, on areas posed to the security incidents, uh, the health profession, the mental health professionals, they leave, and we don't have local actors that we can uh, uh, work with us uh, on this response, and special for some security sensitive uh, contexts. So um, that is the that is. When you look at the needs and when you look the how you can uh, design and to implement an intervention, that are the main issues. But also back to your first question, uh, the importance to put the mental health as a priority because we have the normal tendency to to neglect about the importance of mental health. So let's deliver the basic needs uh, and the weeds. It demands a huge work in terms of advocacy to sensitize the authorities, leaders, other organizations uh, to include the mental health as a part of the humanitarian response. So, in other words, to make the invisible visible, um, to put uh, this problem as something that we need to deliver in the, in the, in the very first moment. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I find it really overwhelming to think about the, the challenges in accessing people in need when you think that really everyone in a situation of armed conflict could benefit from some, psych some form of psychosocial support. I mean, really every single person aff affected by the conflict. So how your team is you know, grappling with uh, what you're saying, the access challenges and also the lack of mental health uh, professionals must be very daunting. So can you tell us some, uh, some things that your team and the ICRC more broadly are doing to reduce this gap that you're talking about? Uh, what are some of the work that your team, can you give us an insight into your daily life and some of your overarching uh, objectives that you're trying to work towards with this regard? Yeah, yes, definitively. So um, uh, I think the first point is to address the needs uh, considering uh, something that we have the quality. Uh, so we need, to, we need to provide the quality uh, mental health care and try to ensure the best quality possible, uh, considering the access and the, the resources that we have. And, but also something that could be sustainable and something that could be scalable uh, if you're talking about the huge needs that you are not able to cover all the needs ourselves as a CRC. So we invest a lot, for example, in training, what we call capacity building. It's not about the training, but to ensure that people we can you can build this, the capacity of local actors sometimes mm -hmm. they have the presence in the community we have community leaders we have health service and they are present they have the the trust of the community um, but they don't have the the tools or or the the understanding and also the ways to provide the the mental health support so 
by doing that, work with the local leaders, uh, with a health service, we can uh, at the same time to, the, to, to address the needs, I mean, to deliver the assistance, but at the same time to build with the community, with the local actors, something that could be scalable and sustainable in the future. Interesting. Thank you. You know, this is a very bleak picture that we're painting and we're seeing on the one hand uh, just a, a sharp increase of more and more needs as we see more and more people affected by conflict. Are there other uh, areas where we see some optimism? For example, any uh, technological advances? Is there, you know, I think access challenges and I think uh, uh, digital technologies or something, is there are there new innovations that help overcome some of these gaps that you're discussing? Um, yes, definitively. I think and this is uh, uh, start to be um, more uh, serious developed after the COVID pandemic. I mean, overall, uh, for the for the restriction, it's uh, that's uh, for the movement of the quarantine and etc. Uh, in terms of health in general, in the telemedicine, and also to think about the telemental health. Uh, we adopt uh, these measures in some specific projects in the, let's say, in the peak of the cases in 2020 that we're not uh, able to go to the field. So on the scope of the, the existing MHPSS programs that we have in the field that, that were read, have the base of the program. So we start to, to implement this uh, remote support um, but I think uh, we continue to prioritize uh, our presence and uh, to the proximity uh, to the context, to the beneficiaries, uh, to the people, to ensure that we properly understand what is possible, what's possible to be done. And uh, uh, and uh, in some contexts, depending on the condition, depending on the topic, we can think about, for example, trainings uh, that you can do remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, the, the main issue is uh, we need to have a proper reflection uh, what, we, what are the, the, the cost effectiveness of that in terms of the capacity to provide and the quality of care. Mm -hmm. So I think we are still overall, I'm not talking about the humanitarian settings, I'm talking as a mental health professional. So. Uh, we are still uh, trying to understand exactly what are the limits and uh, the real possibilities to do this. Thank you for that. Yes, I can imagine the mm -hmm. grappling with uh, quality over quantity over mm -hmm. something that you know could actually mm -hmm. do a lot more harm than good if you're just trying to, to reach an, a specific number of people without really digging deep into their specific needs, particularly something as sensitive as someone's psychological needs. Uh, so, you know, we are having this conversation in honor of uh, World Mental Health Day. So with this in mind and with us both holding a microphone, can you tell us what would be the key message that you want our listeners to take away, be them policymakers or scholars or other of our colleagues in the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement? What would be the key message that you want them to take away from this discussion? Mm. So the first is uh, the investment on mental health. So when you look about the, the health budget for mental health, where the, the, uh, 
uh, health authorities, the national health authorities, the investment in, uh, in mental health, it's, uh, it's very, very low. So we're talking about 2 to 5% of the national health budgets in average that are used for mental health, and most of them to psychiatric hospital, not in the community-based uh, mental health service. Um, so th the first call is to increase the investment on mental health. Um, and uh, when you look about look at the, the humanitarian uh, sector and we look uh, at the, the humanitarian uh, actors to increase also uh, the investment on on mental health, uh, considering the, the the cost effectiveness of that, we are talking about uh, something that is not a lot, a lot of materials, so it's not that expensive. It's highly uh, effective. So, in special for what we discuss, we invest, and uh, we're talking about not only the impact of the one person, but in the whole community, and also something that can have the impact. On the, on the social economic condition with the person is be able to recover and uh, to deal with the, the challenge of their lives. Um, uh, I would say that the last point uh, would be uh, to think about not only to address uh, uh, the needs after the, the, the conflict on the scope of the conflict, but how you can prevent that how, uh, what are the legal mechanism or uh, the recommendations that we can have on the scope of an international humanitarian law on the protect uh, the human dignity. Um, I'm talking about the principle of uh, the humanity principle, how you can stress the principle to consider uh, when you think about uh, the use of the force, it has not only uh, consequence for the physical health, but also for the mental health. So the histories that we, we, we had from the people, it's uh, uh, what the people pass through, it's something that we can say there is consequence for the whole life. So I think there is also... Um, uh, considerations that we can you can reinforce in terms of the proportional use of the force and that you prevent also the mental health problems. Thank you, Marcelo. Um, I have one last question for you that I do ask all of uh, our guests here on Humanity and War, and that's what, what book are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? And it doesn't have to be rela related to mental health, <laughs> but... Um, is there anything that you're reading that you'd like to share with us? Yes, I don't know how to say uh, the title in uh, in, in English, but it's uh, I would say mm -hmm. the Arabic. Um, I'm reading everything about the region. Uh, I'm not originally from from the Middle East, and um, mm -hmm. uh, really everything available from the history of and uh, as much as reads. Um, uh, much have become passionate about the history uh, uh, of the people and the land and uh, also to understand uh, the people's souls. So you're in a, a complete immersion mode right yeah. now. <laughs> the limits of my possibilities, <laughs> yes. Good. Well, thank you. I, I want to thank you for your time today. And there was something at the beginning of... Uh, 
our conversation that you said that really stuck with me through the rest of it, of why we're talking about this today. And that's um, that you said mental health is pivotal for helping someone's capacity to function. You know, and I, I know that that's a, a, a technical term, but it's also something so human, like having the capacity to function. And when you think about what these people who are living in areas affected by war or having fled that, and just the daily struggle that they're going through just to get their kids to school, to get food on the table, to stay safe, you know, prioritizing their capacity to do that uh, seems to me like a very valuable effort. So I want to thank you very much for your time today and, uh, and for your energy and your work uh, in the field. And uh, we'll be staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org lawandpolicy. A library of posts all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.